1: Hello, I'm Charles Sims, one of your hosts of In Social Work. I'd like to take a moment to address you, our listeners. Thanks for downloading more than 400,000 of our podcasts. We'd like to know what you think of them. Please take a couple of minutes to tell us what you like or don't like about the podcast. If you're an educator and you're using our podcast in your courses, how are you using them in your teaching? If you are a professional practitioner, How have the podcast influenced your work? We would also like to know what you'd like to see us do next. Please go to our website at www.insocialwork.org and click the Contact Us tab. We look forward to hearing from you. Again, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. Well my previous line about us getting the Peabody was an April Fool's prank, but no joke, Our podcast series, In Social Work, has won a national award in the category of Best Website from the National Association of Social Workers Media Awards. We are both humbled and honored to win this prestigious award. Speaking of award-winning social workers, we are very happy to present our podcast colleague and valued friend, Dr. Jonathan Singer, as our guest for this episode. Dr. Singer was the recipient himself of the NASW Award for Best Website for the year 2012 for his own Social Work Podcast. We feel we're in pretty good company. In this episode, Dr. Singer discusses one of his primary research interests, the use of creative arts as a community-based suicide prevention effort. After reviewing current statistics and trends related to suicide in the U.S., Dr. Singer acknowledges that traditional prevention approaches are effective at addressing the stigma associated with suicide on a a one-person-at-a-time basis, but often does little to address the public stigma that is so prevalent and alienating for this population. Dr. Singer describes his efforts drawing on the creative arts as a method that by its very nature is a community-based effort. Specifically, he tells us about the suicide prevention public mural project he is involved with in the Philadelphia area, as well as the storytelling website he is involved with, again providing a creative forum for those persons contemplating and whose lives have been touched by suicide. He concludes by describing the strengths and limitations of the creative arts approach. Dr. Jonathan Singer, PhD, is assistant professor at the Temple University School of Social Work. Dr. Singer's clinical and research interests focus heavily on family-based interventions for suicidal and cyberbullied youth, service access and service utilization, and the use of technology in education and clinical practice. He's interested in the interpersonal mechanisms that protect against or contribute to youth suicidal risk within families how and why parents access services for their suicidal children, and how technologies such as podcasts and social networking sites can be used to disseminate information about prevention and intervention with youth suicidal behaviors. As mentioned previously, Dr. Singer is also the creator and host of the Social Work Podcast, a podcast series whose guests provide information on all things social work. Dr. Singer was interviewed by our own Laura Lewis, Ph.D., LCSW, the director of field education here at the UB School of Social Work.
2: We have Dr. Jonathan Singer with us today to talk about a creative arts approach to suicide prevention. Welcome, Jonathan.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
2: We're happy to have you. Now, Jonathan, you've invested a lot of time in looking at school social worker's experience with suicidal behavior. I was a school social worker, and I have to tell you that despite all of our efforts to combat the problem of teen suicide, it never felt like enough. Can you tell me if that experience was just unique to me, or is that a problem across the country?
0: You know, I think that a lot of folks, probably most folks, well, perhaps everybody who does suicide prevention feels like While they might be effective with any individual, that it's such a huge, daunting, and anxiety-provoking situation, set of behaviors, that maybe for good reasons, people don't feel like they're doing enough.
2: How big of a problem is suicide in the United States?
0: Suicide is a huge problem. So the latest statistics that we have, and those are 2009, 2010, some of them from 2011, but there's a delay. So in 2009, almost 37,000 people died by suicide, and almost 700,000 people get emergency services after a suicide attempt. It's the third leading cause of death among folks aged 15 to 34, and the second leading cause of death among folks who are 24 to 35, and the third leading cause of death among 15 to 24-year-olds. And in the United States, you are twice as likely to die by your own hand than to be killed by somebody else. So 37,000 folks kill themselves, and about 13,000 folks are homicide victims every year. Suicide is on the rise, and in 2010, it was the only leading cause of death that showed a significant increase. So all of the research that's coming out, especially that with the military, where rates of suicide are suggested to be 20 per 100,000 versus in the general population, which is about 12 per 100,000, suggests that suicide is numerically a problem and also proportionately in terms of death is increasingly a problem.
2: Do you want to say anything about underreporting of suicide for youth? Because I think it's listed still as the third leading cause of death, but people actually think it's somewhat higher because of accidents that are misreported.
0: So for youth, suicide is considered the third leading cause of death, but the latest numbers that were released by the Center for Disease Control suggested that there was less than 60 deaths that separated the number two cause of death, homicide, with suicide, the third leading cause of death. And to put that into context, that means that if 61 more youth died by suicide next year and the rates of homicide stayed the same, then suicide would then become the second leading cause of death behind unintentional accidents as the leading cause of death among youth. There are some that would say that, in fact, it is the second leading cause of death because of underreporting. We only know that somebody died by suicide if it has been ruled a suicide, typically by the coroner's office. And for various reasons, you can imagine if you're in a small town and you know the coroner and the coroner knows you and knows that for religious reasons, suicide is a sin. And the coroner would be sympathetic and say, hey, the child's dead. The family's suffering enough. I'm going to call this an accidental death. Right, so suddenly you have one kid who wanted to die, had the intention to die, and actually took the means into his or her own hands to die by suicide, and yet it's not counted as a suicide. So we say it's the third leading cause of death, but it's possible, it's likely that it's the second leading cause of death in youth. There was a study that came out in January of 2013 by Matt Nock and his colleagues at Harvard. It was the first study that provided a nationally representative sample of suicide risk in youth. And what they found was that about 12% of kids in their lifetime reported suicidal ideation, 4% reported a plan, and 4% reported attempts. One of the things that was most interesting about this study was that of the kids that reported that they had thought about suicide and reported making an attempt, that the time between onset of ideation and attempt was about a year, which suggests that there's a very small window of opportunity to intervene with kids between the first thoughts of suicide and the first attempt. Now, this isn't to say that all kids that think about suicide will go on to make an attempt over the course of a year. Not at all. In fact, it's only about a third. But that if there is a way to tap into that quickly, then we will go a long way in reducing the suicide attempt rate and ultimately the death rate in youth.
2: And so what would you say is the current approach to suicide prevention in the U.S.? What are we doing?
0: Well, right now we're doing a bunch of things. In terms of youth, there are a number of different levels of suicide prevention. You have the sort of universal screening that happens in schools. The idea is that you try and catch kids who demonstrate some sort of risk for something that we know is associated with later suicidal ideation, plan, attempt, or even death. And and then you have selected interventions where we look at specific clusters of individuals, say kids who are involved with the juvenile justice system or drugs or have been abused or engage in other risky behaviors, such as smoking. And we target interventions to those folks. And then the final way that we do it is that we actually intervene with kids who have said, I want to kill myself, or I wish I weren't dead. So, so really, we target the folks who are at most high risk. Now, in terms of the adults, we also have screening. It doesn't tend to address as many kids as in schools, because there's no one place that adults are, like kids are in schools. But one place is primary care. When you have folks go in for physicals or, and when I say folks, I mean adults, when you have adults going in, if they're primary care providers asking them questions, how have you been feeling lately? Have you had thoughts of killing yourself? Those sorts of things. That can be a way of screening. But there is nothing outside of the schools, and I should say, and the military. The military has been doing a fantastic job lately of addressing the issue of suicide and in part, it's because you have a very highly structured and closed system in which you have a lot of information about everybody, and you can really address these issues. So in terms of approaching suicide prevention in the United States, for certain groups like kids and the military, you have more systematic approaches. For everybody else, it's just kind of catch-as-catch-can on an individual basis. And so one of the things that I think is really important To know about this is that you have no full-on way of preventing suicide in either the United States or the world that is universal, that is systematic, and that has been shown to work.
2: Right. So you're talking about several layers of efforts, universal screening, targeted intervention, and then lethality assessments with people who might express thoughts of suicide. Isn't that enough? What are the limitations associated with all of those approaches?
0: Well, I think one of the biggest limitations is that if you look at the rates of suicide, they've actually started to go back up again. After years of decline, you have a situation where both among adolescents and adults. And in part, this is being driven by some recent stats about suicide in the military. But you see rates of suicide increasing in the United States. And so just from a purely numerical level, obviously, there are limitations. We're not doing a good enough job of identifying and preventing suicide. On a more conceptual or theoretical level, all of the efforts that I've discussed are based on the individual and they're based on what we can think of as like a behavioral health model meaning that for whatever reason an individual will find themselves having thoughts of suicide making attempts making plans this could be because they have an underlying depression anxiety ptsd aggressive impulsive disruptive disorder Maybe they're environmental things, they have access to weapons, all those sorts of things. But it really focuses on the individual. And addressing the problem of suicide on an individual level is possibly one of the problems with our current approach to suicide prevention. And so what I mean by that is that one of the things that happens in suicide prevention is that if we're dealing with it one person at a time... We can address the personal stigma, right, the sense that there's something wrong with me, that there is a stain on me, that somebody can say, oh, I'm a bad person, I've got, I'm flawed somehow. We can address that, but we can't address the public stigma, the sense that the public has that something's wrong with you. If you are thinking about killing yourself— then you must be defective or deficient in some way. It's the classic thing that we see in social work all the time about folks who are marginalized and oppressed being seen as morally deficient or to blame for their problems. And so just addressing the individual really fails at addressing the bigger issue that we believe is a contributor to suicide risk.
2: Mm, I see. So why take a creative arts approach to suicide prevention? It strikes me in social work education that while we're training students to go out and work with populations, marginalized populations in some cases, that without combating the problem of stigma, we're really not able to make the kind of impact that we should be able to.
0: I would agree with that. And I think that making this distinction between suicide as an individual level problem or a community or societal level problem really shifts the way that we think about how to address it. And so you asked about this creative arts approach to suicide prevention. You know, one of the things about a creative arts approach is that it is not necessarily, but it's hard to make it something that is not community-based. You can have individual arts in, say, therapy, one-on-one, but to have a community arts project, you are involving the community in doing something.
2: I love that it's a community-based effort. And to me, it makes perfect sense for social work to be leading the way in that kind of effort. I understand that your daughter was involved in the painting of a mural in Philadelphia. What was that like?
0: Having my daughter be involved in painting this suicide prevention mural was I think something that's gonna be that's gonna stick with me as one of my favorite memories of my entire professional career. Let me back up just briefly and explain what this mural was. The city of Philadelphia has a program, a mural arts program. And they were approached by the Department of Behavioral Health and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Philadelphia chapter, to work on a suicide prevention mural. There's never been anything like this in the world that we can find. And over a 15 to 18 month period, over a thousand people were involved in developing the design and then actually painting the mural through community paint days. One of the reasons why this was so important for Philadelphia in particular is that Philadelphia has a much higher suicide attempt rate among its African-American males than in comparable cities around the country, even though the death by suicide rate is no different. It's an issue that is important to address in Philadelphia and one that we don't seem to be doing a good job at doing. So when it came down to these paint days... One day I said to my wife, and I said, hey, let's bring Emerson down to the suicide prevention mural paint day. We had a conversation. Is this something that you bring a four-year-old to? Of course, this is my area, so I said, well, yes, (laughs) of course it is, right? Because it's suicide prevention, and part of suicide prevention is reasons for living. It's hope. It's all of the things involved with that. So I thought, this will be amazing. My daughter will go down, she'll paint the mural, and then forever she'll be able to look at it on the wall of Horizon House at 31st and Chestnut in Philadelphia and say, I painted part of that. The reality was was that she was four, and after about five minutes of painting different shades of brown in this one particular section of the mural, she was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> so it didn't really end up being the full-blown like afternoon of painting I had imagined, but she contributed nonetheless, and I was very grateful for that opportunity.
2: So even your four-year-old daughter could connect to this effort. And that really, that seems like what makes this approach so unique is that it really speaks to people no matter where they are. People can really connect with it from a variety of different perspectives.
0: I think that is a great point, that even a four-year-old can connect to a suicide prevention project. Absolutely, yeah.
2: And Jonathan, I'd love to hear more about the Mural Arts Program. You also have a storytelling website, though, that I would love to hear a little bit more about, too.
0: Yeah, so the Suicide Prevention Project, this Creative Arts Project, had a number of components. There was the mural. There were also some storytelling workshops that were facilitated by Molly Layton, who's a psychologist in Philadelphia, And then during a conversation that I had with James Burns, who was the lead muralist for this project through the Mural Arts Program, we started talking about where should you put the mural? My first thought was you should put it everywhere, right? Because suicide prevention is everywhere. But you can't put a mural everywhere. I mean, obviously, we can't blanket the city with a mural. We can't. So do we put it on the side of a school? Well, in terms of youth suicide prevention, that could be great. I mean, it would certainly raise the hackles of many in the community to have a suicide prevention mural in the schools because of, again, the stigma we were talking about before. Should you put it on the wall of a factory? If I were to be reductionistic and simplistic, I would say that, yes, if you're looking at older men who are the most at risk for dying by suicide, putting a mural on a factory wall is a great idea. Should you put it on a hospital? Well, there are certain issues with that. So the question of where to put it kept coming up. In the end, we put it at a social service agency that had a great wall in the central part of the city, so that worked out well. But through this conversation, this idea of where do you put suicide prevention, we came up with the idea of a storytelling website, a website where people could go 24-7, 365 to share stories of either surviving the death of a loved one by suicide of surviving a suicidal crisis themselves so if they'd attempted or had suicidal ideation or for folks like social workers and other mental health professionals who had helped someone through a suicidal crisis this was a place where these folks could go and share their story and then again at any time of the day or night people could go and read those stories both as a way of saying i'm not alone but also as a way of connecting, addressing stigma, and uh, hopefully tapping into some sense of hope. Because all of the stories, while they reflect pain, also reflect, among the survivors, the pain of losing somebody, but also the hopes for people so that they don't die by suicide. Sure.
2: What I love about the project, Jonathan, is that the process of contributing to the mural and contributing to the website, as you said, so eloquently, gives people hope, that there's a real therapeutic aspect of being able to contribute. But there's also a parallel, I think, to your having searched for where to put this, right? Because nowhere in your physical surroundings did it seem to make quite perfect sense. I imagine that people coming to the website or people viewing the murals must have the feeling of there is a place for me that there's a symbolic piece about having the stories online and having the mural that gives comfort to people who feel very isolated.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, that there's a challenge about where do you put this, and then by having it on the web, it allows people to seek it out and find it, which is great.
2: So I love the project. I really would love to see more communities taking this kind of approach, Is there anything else, Jonathan, you'd like to tell us about the process of creating the mural or the website?
0: Well, you know, one of the things that I would say is that the storytelling website, which you can go to storytellingmural.org to read stories or to contribute, that website is a moderated website because even though we want people to share, we also know that there can be negative effects of sharing the wrong kinds of stories around suicide. There's some famous studies about reporting of suicides, reporting that sensationalizes suicide, that actually increases suicide risk among people, not just youth. And so all of the stories are moderated to make sure that what they're focusing on is really the pain caused by the death of somebody who died, but also the hope among those who were suicidal and found another way. Not to be Pollyanna-ish, but just to say, look, this is a crisis you're in right now, and... There's likely some other way to get out of this other than killing yourself. Here's some thoughts. Right.
2: So, you bring up a good point, Jonathan. Can you summarize for us what are some of the strengths and limitations of a creative arts approach?
0: So, some of the strengths of the creative arts approach are that it served as a way of bringing together a group of stakeholders. So, you had the Department of Behavioral Health. You had a private foundation that focuses on suicide prevention, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. It brought together this creative arts group, the Mural Arts Project. It brought together people who were emergency responders, firefighters, EMS workers. It brought out of the woodwork folks who had lost people to suicide that had never reached out. It managed to tap into a thousand people from all walks of life around this one subject this one heterogeneous subject, but this one subject that ordinarily wouldn't come together at the same table. And it did so in such a way that people could focus on the arts and the creativity and the sense of doing something and making a contribution together to address suicide prevention. And in doing so, people had conversations about suicide prevention they had conversations about people that they loved that died about their own pain and suffering in a setting that wasn't a therapist's office it wasn't your school counselor it wasn't your physician these were people that you were standing next to painting or that you were talking with at a workshop it was really an amazing way of drawing out some real strengths in numbers of support through community to address this topic that, as I said earlier, is typically seen as an individual problem.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And rather than somebody in a doctor's office and somebody who is providing treatment or education being the force behind the healing, it's the individual themselves, actually.
0: Absolutely. That's exactly right. There was no therapist saying, here's what you need to do to get better. There's no doctor saying, you know what, if you take this medication, after two months, you might start to feel some effects. And after a year, you'll see significant symptom reduction. Like, it wasn't like that. It was the community, which I think is a beautiful point about this.
2: Yeah, it's very congruent with social work. The idea of empowering people. And all of those people in the helping professions have a role to play. But it's nice that individuals can also play a significant role in their own healing outside of formal therapy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And let me just say one of the other, I just want to be specific about one of the strengths. So I mentioned that there were firefighters and other emergency service workers that participated in this project. So one of the biggest limitations of placing suicide prevention within a behavioral health model is that those who are most at risk for dying by suicide are those that are least likely to get help. They're those that are least likely to engage with mental health or behavioral health services. This includes folks in the military, emergency responders, older men. What you find is on crisis hotlines... The folks that call most often are women, right? The ones who die most often are men. And so what we had was we had the target group in attendance at this project, not because it was a suicide prevention project, although that was obvious. There was, it's not like there was a hidden agenda here, but because it was a community effort, right? And you could show your support for the community and say that I am a team player, I'm a community player by participating in this. And so it addressed that stigma of, I'm supposed to be, as a service member or a first responder, I'm supposed to be strong in the face of a crisis. I'm supposed to be able to do what most other people can't do, which is withstand an enormous amount of pressure and adversity. And of course, if you're somebody in the armed forces or a first responder that is suicidal, well, all that goes right out the window. It's like, really, you call yourself a firefighter? And how can you save somebody else if you can't even save yourself? And so this project really addressed that individual-level stigma and provided a public forum where people could be supported and cared for.
2: That's great, Jonathan. It really helped to break down some of the barriers that prevent people from getting help.
0: Absolutely. Let me just say briefly, one of the biggest limitations of this is One of the biggest limitations of this creative arts project for suicide prevention that I was part of in the city of Philadelphia is that there are no outcome measures that we have established. It's really hard for me to say that on a community-wide level, we have addressed the suicide rate in Philadelphia. I can't tell you that fewer African-American males in Philadelphia are going to be attempting suicide this year as a result of this project. I can't even tell you if anybody that participated in the project is less likely to have suicidal ideation, make an attempt, or die by suicide. We just don't have that information. And those are typically the metrics by which suicide prevention projects are measured. At the very least, number of people referred to services, again, within the behavioral health model, that is a metric. We can't say that, and I think that we have to rethink how we measure suicide prevention and what we're really looking at as an important component of suicide prevention if we are going to make a project like this be more empirical or more rigorously evaluated
2: sure do you have any thoughts about that jonathan being that you're a researcher in a great school of social work how do we deal with the fact that some important work that's being done may not have evidence, necessarily, to support the efficacy of it.
0: Right, this is, I think, this is part of the conflict that we have in social work, which is that when we're involved with something, especially a community-level intervention that is a community effort and perhaps not funded through NIH or doesn't have millions and millions of dollars and tons of evaluators on board, it can be hard to say, well, how does this work? Especially if the metrics aren't things that people necessarily think of as being the holy grail of how you would measure that. What I would say is that I think having after the fact focus groups, maybe before and after focus groups of what do you think about suicide? What do you think about the resources that are available? How do you conceptualize suicide? When you think of somebody who's suicidal or somebody who's died by suicide, what do you think about them? How is it that you would go about developing community? Do you think that this is something that can be addressed on a community-wide level, or do you think we should focus on individual-level variables? I think all of those questions, if you could somehow gather information about those, could be really, really useful. One of the dominant theories of why people die by suicide was proposed by Thomas Joyner in 2005, and one of the things that he talks about is the sense of people being isolated and not feeling like they belong, and that that is a huge factor for why people ultimately die by suicide. And I really believe that a project like this, a community level project that involves the creative arts, that's expressive, that allows people to say what they wanna say through artistic expression, uh, through a community project, I think that it would address that sense of loneliness and isolation. I'm not exactly sure how to measure it. Maybe I should call Thomas Joyner, but we, you know, I think it's the thing that we could figure out. And if we could, I have a fantasy that every community in the country could have a project like this where they develop a suicide prevention mural, an accompanying website where people can share stories. And that in this way, we start to address issues of stigma, shame, and the loneliness and the isolation that often accompanies people at risk for suicide. That would be great.
2: Jonathan, I looked at your Vita online. I happen to know that you studied jazz at an earlier stage in your life. Are you a jazz musician?
0: Yes, I am.
2: I wondered if you still played, and I wonder, can you tell the audience, tell me, if you wouldn't mind, if that has influenced the direction of your work?
0: Well, so to answer your first question, I'm a jazz drummer. I played straight-ahead jazz, Latin jazz, all sorts of jazz. I've played a bunch of different kinds of music. I've played South by Southwest a couple times. I mean, I was a gigging drummer for years and years and years. Because I have a family now and because I am full-time faculty at Temple University School of Social Work and I have other responsibilities, the tenure and promotion committee should know about. I'm very dedicated to my scholarly work. I do play, and I play only occasionally. Of course, I would love to play more. But having had this experience of being involved in music and knowing what it's like to be in a community of musicians while playing music and being involved in that energy of creativity, especially in jazz with the improvisation, I've always known in my gut that there is real power in the creative arts in change. Individual level and community. I mean, you just have to sit in a jazz club listening to an amazing (laughs) jazz combo to know that everybody is transformed when they're listening to that. They get moved to a different place. It's not a mural, right? It's not a paint-by-numbers thing that you get a whole community involved in. But for that moment, that community of people sitting in the jazz club, they're moved to a different place, as are the musicians. So absolutely, I think that it's an untapped area of research, of intervention, of prevention for social workers and other helping professionals is this idea of the creative arts.
2: And, you know, I think of social work as a science and an art, and I think that what is so unique about your approach to suicide prevention is that you're bridging both of them. So I know you're currently studying the experience of parents in seeking services for their suicidal youth. And we'll all be looking forward to hearing more about that line of work,
0: too. Thank you. It's been a very exciting study so far, and I'm very excited about some of the directions for future work, especially around parent-focused interventions. But we can talk about that some other time.
2: Great. I look forward to hearing more about that. Thanks so much, Jonathan.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure, Laura. Thank you so much for talking with me about this.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Jonathan Singer discuss the use of creative arts as a community based suicide prevention effort on In Social Work. And please be sure to check out Dr. Singer's own social work podcast for his latest interview with his guest, our own Dean and Professor Dr. Nancy Smith. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.